Alano, my name is Emma. I'll be reading the scripture this morning. You can open up your Bibles and read along with me if you'd like. We are 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word. You can be seated. Thank you, Emma. My name is Paul. I'm the associate pastor, and uh, Pastor Andrew and his wife Jody are out on celebrating celebrating their anniversary. So drop them a note. What what year is it for them? I don't. Twenty eight. All right, not bad. Yeah, praise God. Um, if you've been in my household, listening to me and my wife talk lately. You would be hearing conversations about a biography I've been reading about Jonathan Edwards. I think I've mentioned this biography about a month ago. So basically what that means is I learn about Jonathan Edwards, you will learn about him uh, over the next couple months. Um, But actually there's been uh, some observations I've made that were very, I found very relevant for us today. And especially as we begin to enter into uh, the book of 1 Corinthians and what was going on there. Because when you... When you study about um, the 18th century uh, colonial New England and the, the way that religion was practiced, Christianity was practiced, um, they were a people who were known for their purity of theology, right? They were called Puritans because they were very rigorous biblical people. They wanted to be very, very tied into what Scripture says, preaching Scripture, and then they were known for their piety, right? So they were very uh, strenuous about following the commands. So much so that you had to prove you were truly converted in order to be a member of a Puritan church. That sounds a little intense to me. Um, and so they were very serious. But curiously, they had one practice we today would find reprehensible and obviously unbiblical. And yet all of the New England churches practice this. And that is that they would assign seating based on your status in the community. Could you imagine that? In fact, some churches you had to pay for your seat. And so that meant the the people who had more money got the better seats. Now, even if that wasn't the practice where you, sometimes the seats were reserved, but that was still by status. How long had you been in the community? How old were you, right? So some of the times the young people had to sit in the back. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, But inevitably, money and finances were implicit by where you got to sit. 
And so the, uh, Edward's biographer asked the obvious question, the good question, which is how could, some, how could this whole community of clergy and Christians who were so strenuously biblical practice something that had such clear biblical injunctions against it? Right? I mean, we can just read James who says, don't show any partiality to anybody because of any reason. We have Jesus saying very clearly, do not desire the better seats in the synagogue like those vipers, the Pharisees. And so he's like, how could they have missed that? And his answer, I think, is insightful. And he says that, in the, and you've got to understand, in the 1700s, that uh, New England were so steeped in aristocratic culture that held to rigid social structures, aristocratic New England, think England, New England, aristocratic, rigid social structures, right, that they could not imagine not maintaining that in their church practices. In other words, their cultural and societal context gave them huge blind spots to clear biblical teachings. And so I think this explains why whole swaths of Bible-believing Christians could support things like slavery and Jim Crow. When the culture surrounding the church has such strong creeds, the people of God themselves can become blind to scriptural teaching that confronts or challenges that cultural creed. And so the church has a history If you just look at church history, we learn that we clearly have blind spots. And it is there is a clear pattern that those blind spots match the culture that surrounded that church. And so because of that, because of the church's blind spots due to the cultural mores of its days, that should haunt us today. That should cause us to be vigilant as God's people. How are we capitulating to culture contrary to God's clear teachings right in front of us? And so to help us with that is the book of 1 Corinthians. Because that is exactly what is going on with this church. Um, uh, this is a, Paul, when Paul writes the letter to 1 Corinthians, the way I would describe it is he is trying to stabilize a church that is a hot mess of quarreling and controversy and confusion, which makes last week's message the more powerful that Paul starts off this letter by saying that they have been um, established as God's people by the grace of God. He still recognizes the grace of God in their life, that they are brothers and sisters. He has fellowship with them, but he's going to jump right in and say, but you guys got all kinds of problems. And he's going to have a struggle with the Corinthian church. In fact, it's going to take two letters to deal with his struggle with them. Okay? Um, and so the, the, there, is, there is a problem. There is an underlying problem, though, that they have. And I think the structure of 1 Corinthians helps us identify what their core issue is. Because in chapter 5 through 15, 10 chapters, Paul deals with a litany of issues. Okay? Right? He's going to deal with things like 
uh, judgment in the church. He's going to deal with issues of sex and the, the, our bodies and how we use those to glorify God. He's going to talk about issues of Christian freedom. He's going to talk about how we practice the Lord's Supper, how we practice spiritual gifts, um, the, the controversy about the resurrection. He's going to get into all of that, and so will we. Those are the controversial issues of, of the Corinthian church, and some of those tap into some of the controversies that we have to face as a church today, right? But, the, but Paul's not ready to go there. He's not ready to jump into those issues until he deals with the root issue that the Corinthians are having and he's going to jump into that root issue right away. There is a problem that the church is having that he says that we got to start here. Because this gets at their fundamental problem. Paul's not even ready to jump into all the issues till he gets this straight with the church, the Corinthian church. And that's our strategy. That's the spirit strategy with us. We're not ready to jump into those controversial issues until we get something very, very clear in our hearts. Paul's going to take four chapters to address that one issue. Four chapters. And it starts here in this passage. So let's pay attention. Let's pay attention to what is it that was causing all these problems in the church that has to get settled before Paul's willing to address the other controversies. It starts here, and we're going to be in verse 10. Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So what's the issue that Paul zeroes in right away before he gets to all the other like 10, 12 other issues and he spends four chapters on? Unity. The church is fighting with each other. And he wants them to resolve this. He wants to attend to this one problem. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see that Paul is demanding unity. And what he, what he actually says is when it says that uh, you all agree, in the Greek it says you have the same speech. Right? So notice what Paul's saying. I want you to have the same speech, the same mind, the same judgment, and I already was confronted as a 21st century American with what is Paul talking about? What do you mean be the same in these areas? I don't think, I mean, judge for yourself, I don't think there's been any point in history that has valued the individual and the autonomy and the sacredness of the individual more than right now. And so I think if we're going to talk about being co-opted by the culture, we have to start right here. I don't think we really understand Christian unity. I struggle. What does Paul mean? What is it that we need to agree about and be the same about? I really, so I want to take a minute and define unity for us and try to help us out. Try to have some categories of unity that we can get behind and work towards together. So I think there are two aspects of unity that I see kind of come out of this passage Paul says, I want all of you to agree and have no divisions. And so I think the first aspect I'm calling, um, uh, we need to have a relational unity. 
relational unity, when Paul says there's no divisions, he's saying, I don't want there to be anything among you that's causing you to separate and form groups of people that have hostilities and distrust towards other groups of people in the church. There should be a, and I think the, the New Living gets this right, there should be a relational harmony a Paul will say in Ephesians, a, uh, the bond of peace should always be evident. And so what is it that we should agree about? Well, that anything that makes us start to distrust each other and form groups because we're in this camp and someone's in that camp, anything that causes that needs to get rooted out of the church. Anything that causes that, we actually have to figure out how to come together and not let that separate us. So there is a relational unity that needs to be maintained. The second aspect of unity I'm calling directional unity, right? And so um, this is the idea that we have to be unified in the same, uh, have the same movement towards goals and resolutions and convictions. And I get this because Paul says you need to be of the same mind. You need to be of the same mind. And so that's referring to our intellectual capacity, He's saying we need to have the same understanding. We need to understand the issue together. I like the idea of a mutual understanding about things. But we can't just stop there. Paul says you need to be of the same judgment. The same judgment refers to an appraisal of a situation that leads to actions or decisions. Okay, A judgment meaning here is how we understand the situation and what are we going to do about it. That's the idea of judgment. Um, and so uh, we need to have unity uh, of, of these, uh, in these two areas. And so, for example, what that could mean is that we should have a directional unity um, on church's stances and teachings on different doctrines and issues. It could be in the implementation of certain ministry programs and leadership structures, forms of worship and communion, uh, the practice of spiritual gifts, which we're going to get to Um, in several months, and it can be in the form of financial decisions, matters of membership, and church discipline. And so we need to figure out how we can have mutual understanding about these issues, but in a way that we are agreed and of the same judgment. We We have unity about how we move forward together in those issues. And so how do we achieve that? If that's the definition, how do we achieve that? So we need to define unity, and I think the first thing we have to do to achieve unity is we have to defend unity. We have to defend unity, and so what does that mean? How do we defend unity? Um, Well, I think the first thing we have to do is something that my professor, one of my professors like to say, is you have to be able to sound the alarm, right? Uh, Leaders are people who who identify problems, and we're going to see that here where Paul is going to say that it's been reported to me by Chloe's people. Chloe's people have come and told me of the problems that are going on. And so I think, I think that's instructive for us in a few ways. Um, the first thing is, you know, we're going, to ex- uh, um, we're going to explore some teaching Paul has about gender roles in the church. Paul is going to say some tough things that I think we're going to wrestle with given our modern sensibilities about the roles of men and women. 
And we're going to wrestle with those. And I have a wrestle with some things Paul says in this, in this book. But one thing we can, we can establish right here, right now, is that Paul respected the voice and viewpoint of women. Chloe was a woman, but not just a woman, clearly a woman of influence. Paul says, like, your, Chloe's people came and talked to me. She's got people who, like, belong to her. And he established, he wrote his whole letter based on their, their report. And not only that, he name drops her probably to give, give credibility to the church itself. In other words, he's saying, hey, Chloe's people told me this was going on about you. And so the effect would have been, oh, wow, shoot, if Chloe said that, then yeah, that's really true. That's the kind of person she was in the church. So Paul clearly respected and acted upon the judgment of women. Uh, and Chloe and her, her people had the courage to sound the alarm. And so that's the second part that's instructive for us about how do we defend unity is sometimes we have to be willing to bring up problems. Houston, we have a problem. Could you imagine what would happen to Apollo 13 if uh, they try to say, ah, we'll, we'll figure this out, it's okay, not a big deal. Would have ended horribly. Sometimes we have to sound the alarm. We have to have the courage. And I think especially the influencers in the church, people of standing, people who've been here for a while, of leadership roles, like a Chloe, we need to be willing to say, you know what, there is a problem here. Now, yes, we sometimes can fall into a spirit of grumbling and criticism, and we have to discern that. But the church should value people who have the courage to bring up real problems. So how do we defend unity? Well, we have to be able to recognize when there's a problem. Someone has to say, hey, we need to deal with this. So once an issue has been determined, what do we do then? What do we do once we've sounded the alarm? Um, I mentioned before that if there is an issue that is causing groups to form, that has to get settled, that has to get dealt with. And so what do I mean by that is, I believe what that means is the church has to drill down as to what is the gospel issue. So to defend unity, the church has to sound the alarm, and the church has to determine the gospel issue. Okay, and so that's what we see happening in Corinth, right? Paul is going to talk to them and say, I want you guys to be united. That's the broad principle for all of us. But then he gets into their specific problem. So we're now kind of watching this. I'm not, doesn't mean that's our problem at Solano, but he's, we're going to watch him deal with it. And he's going to say, you guys are dividing um, over things that shouldn't matter. Some of you are saying you follow Paul. Some of you are saying you follow Apollos or you follow Peter. And then Paul zeroes in on the problem of baptism because it, it appears what, hap what was happening was that the Corinthians were basically saying they were turning baptism into something to say, well, I was baptized by Paul. So they were somehow arguing that he was more important. He was the bigger guy in the church. But then other people were like, well, what about Apollos? Have you ever heard him speak? Have you seen the powerful orator he is? He can debate anybody. And other people were like, no, Cephas, he's the OG. He was with Jesus in Jerusalem. And I was baptized by him in the Jordan River. You know, And so they were arguing about who was the greatest, that argument, and wanting to, uh, and that was becoming an issue. And so Paul says, was Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Did Paul die for you? 
Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so he's basically saying this is not the gospel issue. This isn't a gospel issue. You've made it into something it is not. It should not be. And so the call to unity is the call to bring the church into agreement about what is a gospel issue and what isn't. And so who determines that? Who determines what is a gospel issue? And so here we're going to see that Paul does that. Paul determines the gospel issue. He teaches them. He takes the letter to explain what it means to have Christ as the head of the church and to follow him. And so um, today, that mantle has been passed on. And we get that very clearly in the pastoral epistles and in the, in the letter of Ephesians where it says that Jesus Christ has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, and shepherds to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That they may grow into maturity, into the fullness of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, not being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. In other words, the, the shepherds of the church, the pastors and elders, equip the church to understand what is the gospel issue and what isn't. That is the role of the leaders of the church, is to come and say, this is what the gospel, and to bring the church along to understand how it affects the issues at stake that are causing divisions. So issues causing divisions manifested uh, by divisions at the relational level. We're starting to separate. We're starting to fight amongst each other. We're starting to identify with something other than Christ to, to form our sense of of trust and, or hostility towards one another. When that happens, the leadership of the church makes the gospel clear and then does one of two things. One of two things in the midst of division is number one, they have to call God's people out of factions and divisions over things that should not matter. Like who baptized who, right? And I think a modern example would be um, the way the church has handled uh, the theology of the end times. That has caused a lot of division in the church. How is Christ going to come back? When is he going to come back? And basically the evangelical free church, which is our denomination, came and said, you know what? That is not a gospel issue. That he's coming back is a gospel issue. Not the, not the particulars of how. That's a little bit unclear in scripture. So we're, gonna not, we're not going to divide on that. We're not going to make an issue of that. You're free to believe what you want and do not fight about that. That's a good example of how the church has led us to not fight about something that is not a gospel issue. On the other hand, sometimes it means that we have to call God's people to take a stance on matters that do challenge the truth of the gospel. If I were to ask you, should politics divide us? I would say, well, that depends. If you are in 1930s Germany, the church ought to have stood up against the National Socialist Party, shouldn't it have? Those were the Nazis. And in fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer eventually got on his megaphone to say, the church, wake up. You must speak out against this. And if you remain silent, you cannot be faithful to the gospel. This is a dividing line. You're with Christ means you must be against this. And the church failed, failed to establish the gospel issue and call God's people to take a stance. 
So sometimes as, as the church leadership prayerfully discerns the gospel issue in communication and working with the church, there's, there's one mind and one understanding. There is a call to repent of fighting over things that shouldn't matter or a call to take a stance on things that threaten the gospel. Our vision statement says that we want to make loving God and loving neighbor a reality. If there is something that is brought into our society or culture that threatens our ability to do that, I hope we would stand against it. I hope we would fight that. That's a gospel issue. So we have to discern that. That's not always easy. But that's what we have to do. We have to discern that together. Now, um, makes me think that I had this other section. I'm worried about time, but it's, it's basically to explore what do you do if you don't agree with your church? What does that mean if you don't agree with your church? So I'll just give you one principle that is helpful. It's not a rule. But I think that what can be helpful is that when we talk about being of one mind, that's this idea of mutual understanding. Do you know what's really powerful in the church? Is when we can, we can talk to each other and, and we can say, hey, I get where you're coming from. And then in response, we could say, I get what your concerns are. I get what you're coming from. I think a lot of unity can be achieved just by hearing each other out. Even if we don't agree, if we're able to reach a mutual understanding, I think that's fair to say we're of one mind. But then the problem is, is that then you have to make a decision. So if you don't necessarily agree on the issue, but you have mutual understanding, there has to be a decision made. So we have to be of the same judgment. So if you're in a position where you disagree, but you can accept the direction of the church and have peace about it, what I call that is that you are in a spirit of agreement. You have a spirit agreement because you've, you've expressed your concerns and your disagreements. You've heard each other out. You understand where the church is coming from. You may not agree, but you're able to embrace the direction it has taken. That's called a spirit of agreement. I think that's helpful. It doesn't always work. And I, I don't want to make that a rule, but that, you know, if we're in disagreement with the church, it doesn't mean we have to freak out and say, I can't be a part of this church. There's room for mutual understanding. There's room to have a spirit of agreement. So, we, so to maintain unity, <clears throat> I said we have to do two things. We have to defend unity, which means sound the alarm, determine the gospel issue. <clears throat> and I think there's one other thing we see Paul do here. And that is we have to declutter the gospel. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We're going to see Paul declutter the gospel in two important ways. First, we're going to see he's going to distance himself from baptism. Right, And it's kind of funny the way he said that. He's like, I didn't even baptize many of you. And oh, I did baptize that one family. And I don't even know who else I baptized. It's just like, to him, he's like, not a big deal. Right? Now, that challenged me because I'm sure all of you remember vividly my sermon from two weeks ago where I talked about the importance of baptism. And I said that the church's job, we have two main jobs, and one of them is to baptize. And I was all, made this whole big fuss about it. And Paul's like, it's not, it's not, that's not my point. 
And I was like, oh. And so Paul's not saying baptism isn't important. It is. But what he's saying is the priority of the gospel message must be maintained over any forms of gospel ministry. Message over form. And baptism is ultimately a visible form of an invisible truth. And it's commanded. And we're always going to have to do it because it represents the powerful conversion of somebody from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God. So we're going to baptize. But as soon as that visible form becomes the point instead of the message behind it that's when Paul's going to say we've we have made a mistake we have stumbled and so um, we have to keep the forms in their proper place right God did not send us if I were to say this more broadly God did not send us to build buildings or develop strategies or play songs or have clever alliterations in our sermons God did not send us to do that. He raised us up to be ambassadors for Christ, right? No, those other things I just said are important. We'll build buildings. I used clever alliterations in this sermon. But that can't be the point. That is not what we're here to do. And so as soon as those things become the point, then we have to declutter it, right? Think about what decluttering means, Usually what it means is you have a couple good things in the wrong place and it's too much of it. Like I was imagining my desk, that tends to get cluttered. The desk has a good purpose, but when it's full of books, which also have a good purpose, I can no longer use that desk. And I have to put the books back in their place. Does that make sense? That's what Paul is trying to do. Gospel forms of ministry are good but they have to stay in their place and the church has a bad history of fighting about those things and making it about those things and forming factions about who likes what kind of worship and who likes what kind of leaders and how should we do baptism and those things. We have to be careful with that. Those are worthy considerations. But Paul declutters himself from that, declutters the church to get them back to the priority of the gospel which leads to the second way Paul declutters the gospel. If the message is the point, let's see how Paul distances himself from a second thing. He says, I came to preach the gospel not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That word eloquent is not in the Greek. Paul literally just said words of wisdom, logos, Sophia's words of wisdom. And so translators are wrestling with what Paul meant there. And so they added eloquent to say, because words of wisdom shouldn't be a problem here. We want words of wisdom. So Paul, they think Paul's referring to some kind of type of speech. I'm not super happy with the word eloquent either. I think the way, at least in our understanding of it, I think Paul's very eloquent. I desire to say, th- say things as well as I can up here, right? Um, but I, I agree with the translators trying to uh, figure out what this is. Because if you had asked me three weeks ago, before I started to study this passage, on the street, can the cross of Christ be emptied of its power? I would have said no. And then I read this passage. Did you know that? Did you know the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ could be emptied of its power? 
Apparently, the way you preach it can ruin it. The way this is handled can make this whole enterprise a sham and completely pointless. So you better believe I spent some time thinking about what Paul meant here. I don't want to make that mistake. You don't want me to make this mistake. We need to be on the same page here. What is this words of wisdom that we need to not have in the pulpit? Not have in our gospel teaching that's going to ruin this whole thing. So let me tell you what I think Paul meant. This is not a literal term. I believe it's a representative term of a paradigm of teaching of that day. In other words, it represents a genre of teaching that was popular in Paul's day. Um, that was, you know, there were schools of philosophy that had top debaters and rhetoricians of that school of philosophy that people would attach themselves to to say, oh, this is how you live life. This is the true wisdom. And Paul's saying, if I smuggle any of that into the gospel, I've ruined it. If I smuggle the wisdom of the world, represented by these, this school of wisdom, these words of wisdom people, it ruins it. So for Paul, decluttering the gospel means protecting the purity of the gospel message from the creeds of worldly wisdom. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't good things in the world or there isn't some wisdom in the world, but we have to be careful to distinguish that that isn't the gospel, that isn't what we're teaching here on Sundays. And so what we have to think critically about that. What is and what are the creeds of today's wisdom? What are the words of wisdom of today. And I think it'd be something similar if Paul said the word words of wisdom, it'd be something similar to if I used the term self help. That's a genre of wisdom of our day. Self help books are the number one bestsellers on the New York Times. I want to be careful here that I don't want to go out and criticize self help books. But what I do want to say is, they are not the gospel. So that will not be preached here. Because what is the creed of self-help? What is the creed uh, of our world, the wisdom of of our world, is that you deserve a happy life. And everything you need to thrive is inside of you. All you need to thrive is inside of you. And so self-help authors and motivational speakers are trying to help you become the hero of your own story. And in fact, that's a subtle problem, a subtle error of preaching in churches is that God becomes the agent of of your self-actualization to where you are the hero of your story. God exists to unlock all the greatness that's inside of you. So if I were to reword this today, I would say it like this. God has called us to the church to preach the gospel, not with the creed of self-help, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so we have to be together on this, Solano. 
We have to be together about recognizing the creeds of the world. Because if you are going to pressure me and Andrew as a church to tell you how great you are and how much life is all about you, I'm going to develop a blind spot. Andrew and I and your elders and pastors, we're going to develop a blind spot and we're going to become a people-centered church that never wants to challenge or offend anybody and we're just going to flatter ourselves all the way to hell. But if you say to me, Paul, preach the cross. Give me Jesus. If you demand that from me, I'll be more confident. I'll be more bold and more clear. And it'll be a feedback loop between us so that we can stand against the cultural creeds that have taken down so many church, churches and left us a bad witness in so many areas. But we have to know what that means. The cross of Christ will not always lead us to a happy, feel-good place because the cross is bloody. You know what's on that cross? Our sin. You know, when we talk about wanting to unlock everything, all of our potential is inside of us. You know what was inside of us? It brought out the wrath of God. So the Son of God was crucified on that cross for us. And what's more, do you know what else happened on that cross? Paul says that the authorities and rulers of this world were put to open shame. He is saying that where, if you go to this world to figure out and decide what is your true salvation, it is, it is a sham. The fact that Jesus died on the cross means that is your only source of salvation. That is your cornerstone. To him alone, you must turn. And so that means that's going to offend our sensibilities on certain points. If it's true that the wisdom of the world is bankrupt, then there, it, there are places in which the wisdom of the world has infiltrated into our own minds and hearts, and Scripture is going to confront that, and we're going to be like, whoa, 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 really? It's going to offend us. We have to be ready for that. That's why we're not ready for chapter 5 through 15. We need to get very clear as a church, very, very clear that we are God's people so we don't look to the wisdom of the world to give us salvation. We look to the cross. That is the wisdom of God. The picture of who, what is God's wisdom? It's what he did for us through Jesus and him alone. And we have to get that very, very clear in our hearts or we're going to have no shot at having unity in this day. We're going to have no shot at being able to have unity when controversial issues affect us. We have to be very centered on the wisdom of God. But the reason we can do that is because we know what else happened on that cross. The love of God was poured out for us. The love of God for sinners so that our salvation was made available by his free grace. And so that means that we turn to him alone. We fix our eyes on him. It is his standard of love. It is to him that we find out how we truly thrive. 
our true source of joy in him alone. And so let us not turn elsewhere, Solano Church, for, to be that source for us. Whatever creeds of worldly wisdom we begin to identify as pressing on us, we're going to turn to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's going to require work and discernment, and it's going to require a process of coming to some mutual understanding, some discussions. They should be robust. They may at times be emotional, and we're going to stick with each other because of the gospel, because we know the ultimate source of our unity is Jesus Christ. And so may God prepare us for that over the coming months as he speaks to us from 1 Corinthians. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that we could address you as Father. Lord, we thank you that you have made us your children. And Lord, the world looks at the cross and says that is foolishness. It is a stumbling block because it points out our need for salvation. It points out our deficiencies and that we are completely dependent on you. There are ways in which the cross will offend us, challenge us, scare us. But Lord, we do remember and we worship you because we also know on that cross your blood was shed for sinners. Lord, grace and forgiveness abound and salvation is found there. So let us not become idolaters looking elsewhere. Let us look to you alone and help us. Help us achieve that unity. Help us get to the bottom and see the perfection of your wisdom over the coming weeks as we take four chapters to understand your wisdom and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Prepare us for the coming controversies. Prepare us for the issues that we will face as a church, the gospel stands that we need to make. Prepare us for that. Uh, as you teach us through your word and from your gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.